Welcome to episode two of our chapel podcast series, Faith That Works. This week's topic is from James, chapter one, verses 13 to 27, brought to you by Trinity College, Queensland, presented by Dr. Vicki Lorimar. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they look like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious... And do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts. Their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of God. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the purest of them all? Few commonplace items are as fraught as the mirror. They bring light into spaces. They allow us to make photographs. We check them in order to drive safely. We peer into them to ensure there's no spinach between our teeth. We use them to correct our form when exercising. They invoke self-admiration or self-loathing, we seek them out or we avoid them, depending on how we feel about what we see in them. So perhaps this is why humans have such an obsession with the idea of enchanted mirrors. Alice steps through the looking glass into a fantastical world where everything is reversed, including logic and language. Mirrors allow people to see visions or people and events from far away, such as the Lord of the Rings. And I've already alluded to that mirror that condemns poor Snow White, speaking painful truths to a vain queen. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? But even this pales into comparison to the mythic pool discovered by the unfortunate Narcissus, 
who was captivated by his own reflection, unable to wrench away his gaze, he perished. So when we encounter the imagery of a mirror in today's text, what do we make of it? When we come to this metaphor in James, we bring with us all of our own experiences of mirrors, both everyday and magical. And I don't know how it reads to you, but James's reference to mirrors doesn't quite gel with our contemporary experience. Who forgets what they look like? Unless you suffer from the rare neurological condition, prosopagnosia, uh, which means that you have difficulty in recognizing faces, including your own. And in that case, this metaphor doesn't really work. But in a world of glass paned buildings, mirrored elevators, Zoom calls, selfie cams, it's pretty much impossible to forget about what we look like to avoid our own image. So on the one hand, perhaps the exaggerated absurdity of the idea functions rhetorically to underscore James's point. To merely hear the word and not act is as ridiculous, as outrageous, as forgetting what you look like, even though you've just been preoccupied in a spot of mirror gazing. And we can probably read it like this in our own circumstances and take something valuable from it. Fair point, James, we might think. It is pretty absurd to think we can get away with reading the word, but not doing it. Well, how would this illustration have been understood by its original audience? Well, for starters, mirrors tended to be polished metal surfaces, but they didn't give the clarity of image that we get today from these silver-plated glass mirrors. So it actually was completely conceivable that you could look at yourself and forget what you look like because you didn't really get a clear picture in the first place. But despite these imperfections in the Greco-Roman world, the mirror was actually a symbol of moral reflection and self-examination. And here in this passage, it is the law that functions as a mirror. By contemplating the law, one sees an image of who they might become if they practice it. And not just the indistinct image of the burnished metal mirror, but the perfectly crisp reflection we associate with mirrors in our own time. And James is referring to the law, by the way, when he talks of hearing the word and doing it. And this isn't surprising because James is writing to Jewish Christian communities who continued to observe the Torah as part of their Christian faith. But this emphasis on law and works is one of the reasons why James is a fairly controversial New Testament text in its reception and in its interpretation. Luther, for example, famously described it as the epistle of straw with nothing of the gospel in it. Jesus is only mentioned explicitly twice and some interpreters read James's emphasis on works as a rejection of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. And obviously that was something that Luther was really concerned with. While I look forward to coming sermons in this series, as they tackle passages that focus on the role of works in faith and in salvation. But here, I only want to challenge the suggestion that there is little gospel in James. And Luke get, uh, Luther gets selectively quoted too, by the way. He's not actually as down on James as he's often presented. So even though James centres Torah observation in his description of God's word, 
The call he issues for the life of the Christian echoes many of Christ's own exhortations. And I don't think we're taking unreasonable liberties as contemporary believers if we extend the word to include the whole of the scriptures that we've inherited. But as I read through a number of commentaries and sermons in preparation, I could see why people have such concerns. Because interpreters have seized with relish some of the imperatives here. To rid yourself of moral filth, to keep yourself unstained by the world, to paint a picture of the faithful Christian that is turned inward, that is obsessed with personal piety, avoiding and even judging the things of the world as a source of contamination. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the purest of them all? What is the image revealed by the law, according to James? Well, James finishes this section with his picture of pure and undefiled religion, which is action, not deceived listening. To care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Be not hearers that forget, but doers that act. This is what it means to act out the word. So let's unpack each of those separately. And I'm going to start with the second one because that's often where the emphasis is placed, I think. To be doers of the word is to keep yourself unstained by the world. What does that mean? As I described earlier, the world around us reflects our images back to us in endless ways. Which one determines who you are becoming? Are you practising to become the image of yourself you see in that fancy foyer, in that first-class airport lounge, if you remember airports? Are you practising to become that image reflected back from the mirrors in the dance studio or the gym that zero in on form and physique? Or is the reflected image that defines you one of pain, prompting dissatisfaction, disconnection, self-hatred even? Let me be really clear. Not denouncing any of these things in and of themselves, not shaming people for their shame. But if we want to keep ourselves unstained by the world, not separate from, not superior to, unstained by the world, then these things cannot be the defining image of who we are becoming. Mirror mirror on the wall, who's the purest of them all? But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. To look to the word as the mirror that reflects who we are becoming, becoming by practising the word, does not mean that all other mirrors are tossed out, but their power over us is taken away. They do not get to define us. Isn't that freedom? And to look to the word as the mirror that reflects who we are becoming is certainly not to become fixated on personal purity or to regard the world with contempt. Because to be doers of the world also means to care for orphans and widows. And we need to take this in terms of its meaning, not limit it to the literal here. 
when James is speaking of orphans and widows, he's speaking of some of the most vulnerable in his social context. To be orphaned or widowed was usually to be without financial means. So in Jewish writing, the widow and the orphan were often used as categories to represent the poor more generally. In Psalm 68, God is described as the father of orphans, the protector of widows. And I'm reminded here of the parable Jesus tells of the Pharisee who thanked God heartily in prayer that he was not like all other men, including that tax collector nearby, who were swindlers, evildoers, or adulterers. And Luke editorialises a bit in the account, telling us that the parable was directed at those who trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt. Meanwhile, the tax collector simply prays for mercy out of a deep humility. Can't you just picture that Pharisee in place of the fairy tale's evil queen? overcome with zealous rage as the enchanted mirror displays not his own image as he was expecting, but that of the tax collector nearby. The mirror of God speaks plainful truths. Because even though James is criticised for not mentioning Jesus, mentioning Jesus enough by name, when we look at his teachings closely, the image reflected by the mirrors of God's word can only be that of Christ. James tells us that true religion is care for widows and orphans. Jesus proclaims as blessed the poor, the merciful, the persecuted. Jesus, uh, James speaks of the humbling of the rich and the lifting up of the poor. Jesus tells us that the first will be last and the last will be first. And in Luke's gospel, when Mary learns that she will conceive a child and the good news that means, she responds by praising God, saying that God has brought down the mighty and lifted up the lowly. These themes of wealth and poverty, of justice and oppression, produce an image and a model to imitate that is about much more than personal piety. So look deeply into the word the word that whispers to the weary, the downtrodden. My grace is enough. There is no condemnation in Christ. And the word that shouts to the rich, to the privileged, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And be not hearers that forget, but doers that act. Let's pray. Loving God, we are surrounded by reflections of potential images, things that could define who we are and who we are trying to be. Please help us to steady our gaze on your word. Let that be the prevailing image for us. Help us to be doers that act and show us ways specifically that each of us can care for those who are vulnerable in our communities. Jesus, true image of the invisible God, work in us and conform us to that image. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. 
visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.